Welcome to another episode of Fantastic Voyage, the David Bowie podcast. I'm Jesse. I'm John. And we're joined today by... Justin. Friend of the pod. Cousin of the pod, Justin Waterman. First recurring... Uh, a repeat guest. Well, this is the third the time. The third, yeah. I've had you on. <laughs> yeah. Well, technically, this is the fifth episode you've graced us with because, I, to be honest, when I joined the first episode, I wasn't expecting to be at uh, eighty-three already. <laughs> yeah, uh, unbelievable. We have just kind of whipped through this, haven't we? Well, we did his nineteen eighty-four oh. album, and it's pretty much nineteen eighty-four. The right. actual yeah year. Well, yeah, I mentioned on the last episode, right halfway through the the discography right now, uh, if you, even if you count Tin Machine and, you know, like, Toy and stuff, like, we're way past the halfway point. I find it, it's kind of ironic, too, we're at, like, 1984 in his career, and he's finally kicked, like, the doom and gloom aspect of his music and his live performances to the curb, because Serious Moonlight has none of that doom and gloom that, say, uh, the Diamond Dogs tour did. It's, there's the, nothing serious about it, is there? <laughs> except for the title. <laughs> yeah. What are we talking about today? The Serious Moonlight tour, which which brings us to why Justin, we brought you back uh, to be on the show. We couldn't talk to <laughs> about this concert without you being here because, of course, you were there. Your first time of of several seeing Mr. Jones. Yeah, this was the uh, the first of four. I was 11 years old in fifth grade. Uh, it was my first concert, and uh, our parents had already gone to Edmonton a couple of weeks previous to see him because there was no Winnipeg date. Oh wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, so they—I I was just super jealous, of course. And yeah, uh, that's when our, our uncle Chris shaved his eyebrows, and uh, <laughs> grandfather famously said, "Grace, look what your son has done to his face." <laughs> well, Anyways, they—they makes... they went on a big bus tour, and and. And uh, came back with pictures and everything. It was it, it, I was quite jealous. So we didn't know that he was coming here. And uh, a couple of weeks later, I'm coming home from school. And my mom said, who would you like to see more in concert more than anyone in the world? So I figured, well, it's not going to be Bowie. Is she going to take me to some Elvis impersonator? <laughs> I didn't know what it was. And then she, yeah, she said, Bowie's coming. And uh, yeah, got showed me my ticket. And wow. That's uh, I I didn't know that they went to Edmonton prior. Who all went? Was it like our whole most of the crew? Yeah, specifics, yeah. But, okay. Oh wow. So double duty, I guess. Yeah, for a and lot of and they were on the their room was room number was thirteen thirteen on the thirteenth floor. <laughs> oh shit. <laughs> well, so that makes sense that you didn't know he was coming because from what I've heard about this tour, it got bigger as it went on and they, right. they weren't prepared for it. it so there's probably more demand yeah. for tickets and Hey, Winnipeg would like to have you too. And you can make a trillion dollars there also. So that, that makes sense actually. I think the album's success had a lot to do with upscaling yeah. the tour. It wasn't originally supposed to be as he's, big. He's playing at outdoor stadiums now. Like yeah. this isn't like, you know, he's not doing a diamond dog set at like Hammersmith or these little theaters. Like he's playing out He's playing stadium rock. This now. was the first real big event for Winnipeg too. That too. Time. Right. It yeah. was huge. Before that, I think it was the Pope that had the biggest crowd, but this was a huge event. Uh, everybody was there. I've got, uh, if I can find them in time for the upload, news clips, local news clips. Uh, yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. We'll have to mm-hmm. show those. He yep. used to be on your YouTube, your old YouTube account. You were the one that had all the Bowie Winnipeg footage. It was, yes. pretty, it was a pretty big video. <laughs> I remember that. And uh, I've got an autistic son, and he accidentally uh, nuked my page. So I've been spending the last two months uh, going through unnamed files, trying to find, <laughs> which just takes hours. But I've got about 220 out of 320, so getting there. You're Blessing getting there. and a curse, because you do disco- rediscover a bunch of old stuff. Yeah, and sure, I found but... different versions and new mixes. and. But yeah. the sifting is uh, a lot a, of work. <laughs> so, yeah, speaking of the scale of of the tour it was yeah it was huge uh 96 performances between uh may of 83 and december of 83 so he was quite busy uh visited 15 countries across four continents and this is an approximate amount but 2.6 million tickets were sold and speaking of the size of the show of, of the shows there was one performance which was just him it wasn't a festival because there was a festival that had like over like 200,000 people there or whatever but that was like a bigger thing 
but just the Bowie show in Auckland, New Zealand had uh, over 80,000 people just to see Bowie. So <laughs> that's, that's absolutely enormous. And yeah, definitely the biggest thing to come to Winnipeg at that time. That was at the old Winnipeg Stadium, which no longer is with us. Very sad to see that place go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a lot of good memories there. Yeah. We have this new, huge, fancy, beautiful, you know, state-of-the-art type stadium now that nobody likes because it, <laughs> it lacks the character. It's of very on-brand for Winnipeg, too, because it, they were supposed to finish it one year, and it took, like, an extra two years. And even then, like, there was concrete falling from it. It's like, it's... <laughs> yeah. and it's and we, like, Winnipeg is... sticks. Like, it's... Ugh. We we have a very self-deprecating sense of humor, and it's reasons like this. You know? And it's still a vacant lot from what they tore down when our arena and <laughs> right. stadium were right next to each other. Couldn't be more convenient. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, the, we can't have this. They have like a Marshalls kind of there now, like a Marshalls and Homestead. But then they have like a, a Marshalls also like next door. So it's like, I think they we finally added, added something. you missed it. Yeah. Isn't that a big gym now? Like I think it's actually it's, a, it's it's a giant Marshall slash home sense and there's a PF Chang's in the parking lot also but that's that's it. This is where we saw Bowie. Yeah, <laughs> PF Chang's. I I've still got the T-shirt from the '83 uh, concert too. You wore it when we recorded. Yeah, our that's first right. Episode. I, I, yeah, yeah. I still fit it kind of, which is I don't know if that's good or bad considering I was 11. <laughs> <laughs> But it, on the back of the shirt, it's got the uh, crisscrossing of where he's going, and it says Edmonton, but it doesn't have Winnipeg. Oh, so it wasn't added in time yeah. for the t-shirts. Mm-hmm. So, an uh, interesting note on the t-shirts. I was watching recommended viewing for anybody following Are you along. you going to say Ricochet? Ricochet. Yeah, I know, yeah. I know where you're going with this. So, the, the Ricochet, uh, it, so it was a documentary filmed, it was supposed to be in the style of Cracked Actor. Um, I guess I'll get into it a little bit. It, seemed a bit forced compared to Cracked Actor, which it seemed like they just had to roll the camera in 74 and things were were happening. You know, there's, you know, dogs walking across the street, cops freaking Bowie out. And... Yeah, this is just more of the camera angled from the floor and letting him walk by. And... <laughs> right, yeah. A lot of the footage was used in Moon Age Daydream by yeah. uh The by escalator scene, yeah. Yeah, and him, you know, going through customs and stuff like that, which brings me to the point. So... There's a scene where he's talking to uh, some, maybe the tour manager or something. I'm not sure who it was. And they're, well, Bowie seemed kind of concerned about the price of the tickets. And he was kind of saying, well, in order to make this work, like we have to make this much money or else like we don't pay everybody, basically. Uh, just to kind of paraphrase a bit. Here I am paraphrasing again. Uh, but then he, the, the manager, the guy takes a phone call and it seems like the merch has been held up at customs or something. He says, I don't care what you got to do. Pay the duty. Get those t-shirts. They have to be here like tonight. Because they need to be sold. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Your t-shirt. That was a really interesting scene too because uh, this is for like, they did like four shows. It was like an Eastern leg, right? Four shows in like Hong Kong and Singapore and stuff like that. Yeah. And then... Uh, Right before that bit, the that tour staff or whoever he is, he's talking about how, you know, we might not even break even here with the ticket pricing because compared to the wage in this country, the wages in this country, the tickets are way too expensive, but we also can't charge them any less. They're like, we're guaranteed to lose money. And it was just kind of very interesting to see them. This is like uncharted territory for them. Right? Like they're going all the $20 way. in Winnipeg, and that was, it was, uh, yeah. that was huge. Wow. Even in the news clips, say, I can't afford $20 for a ticket. <laughs> well, and then the, the, the poor kids in Hong Kong, they were trying to, there's a scene, they kind of have that one it's kind guy. of the narrative of the show, or of, yeah. of the documentary. Yeah. It's like this guy trying this, to. This he's, kid, he's selling his records because he can't. And he's in a great little three-piece band. They're doing Ziggy. Yeah, and some kind of like tight, <laughs> even smaller than where we, we were jamming the other day. They were playing in a closet. And they were great, though, especially that drummer. But, like, but, but the drummer messes up, and then he goes, oh, sorry, guys, i got to go to work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what else I thought that struck me is that... They're in a Bowie documentary. Are you going to the concert? No, I can't afford it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Somebody spot this guy a ticket. Yeah. Yeah. He couldn't book off work, too, for, for his big documentary. <laughs> You're in this Bowie documentary, and you got to cut your one song, you know, midway through the second verse. Oh, oh that was great. Uh, <laughs> but, I mean, 
Yeah, so well, it's like not to make like, light of these people not like really wanting to go. To I also see. wonder if they were acting to illustrate a point. Like, I think this, so. This yeah, is the state of so. where we are. This is what they have to do because obviously, if they David Bowie's there and there's cameras that cost a million dollars, they lend the guys ten bucks. He wouldn't have to pawn his David Bowie albums off to go see David Bowie. <laughs> I feel like this this band got in. <laughs> like like yeah. they, they, they let I, them in. I think they might have been like picked. Well, like, hey, we need to film some scenes for this. Let's movie. get them on the show. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Hey, I mean, I haven't looked them up. Yeah, let's let's get them on. <laughs> it's kind of relevant right now. This new, so scalpers have always driven the prices of shows up. You know, the the price of of tickets. And right now, Ticketmaster is doing the scalping. It's kind of in the news now. Like the dynamic pricing, yeah. which has kind of taken over, mm-hmm. where you see tickets that normally would go for like the most would be like a few hundred bucks unless you get those vip c sound check type things but now they're going for like six seven hundred dollars from Ticketmaster directly and that's and pre-selling at a higher price is just criminal yeah Mm -hmm. that's not fair to anyone well yeah and i find too that if you don't if you buy tickets pre-sale or early like on the day that they go they drop don't look later because you'll find better seats better seats (laughs) it's like they get all the best fan like the the fans that yeah. need to make yeah. sure they're there, they get those tickets in decent seats. Like they got you know, it down to a science. Yeah, and then you know the the average fan who the day of is looking for tickets and they go, oh, third row. Yeah, I'll, I may as well. Well, uh, we'll obviously discuss later. But in '87 in the Glass Spider, <clears throat> I had nosebleed tickets, and uh, my friend and I walking by, and rush seating gates opened. <laughs> I ended up front row. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, I, I can't even sit in an empty seat in the lower bowl at a Jets game without ushers like jumping like like John Wilkes Booth from a balcony <laughs> to tackle me yeah. to, to not sit in the more expensive seat. Yeah, they've they, they've gotten a little more uptight in recent years. So this was a well documented tour. There was that Ricochet documentary. Um, there was it was planned to just be a proper live album, but it never really did get released until recently there's bootlegs galore of this tour it eventually i think the serious moonlight live 83 which was recorded in vancouver uh made it on that era 4 box set um and recently like this week we're watching it's up on our screen right now we're watching just the the video of it the the entire sydney australia show was uncovered and this looks early on uh, well, no, this the... I think no. This was towards the end of the tour. I'm trying I believe. to find my oh, really? remote. Yeah, because I judged by his haircuts and live yeah, Sydney. By... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I I think this was maybe the second to last leg of the tour. I think this was designed to be one of the last shows. Then they added on those extra shows in the Far East, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken. Um, this I, is a this, this was great footage though. I'm really glad that this came up. It was perfect timing for our show. I watched all this last night. I thought that the Winnipeg show was like the second to last that he went to L.A. or something, but I could be or he went to California. No, th- this ended out in the okay. east. Okay. Uh, yeah. Well, it just sounds like whatever you might have thought was the end. Like there was just stuff kept getting added, right? So he complained that it was cold in Winnipeg. <laughs> yeah, he put his jacket back on after he usually had it off. And was it in September? September fourteenth. It was uh, actually yeah, Elaine's birthday that we went for, and then twenty one years later, I had Logan on that day. Oh wow! Who nuked my YouTube page twenty <laughs> years later? <laughs> wow! <laughs> so the set was for a tour this big. It wasn't the craziest set, was it? Well, he dropped some songs along the way. Like they started, oh, I, I think, with a lot more. Oh, I meant like oh, the, the I was actual saying set the, list the, the or, stage, yeah. the, the stage. I meant, yeah. We called them condoms in the uh, at the time. That's where he sings like "Ashes to Ashes" in one of those those col- those column things, yeah. right? Yeah. I saw that they originally there was supposed to be this huge gigantic cartoon figure of oh movie. yeah like a big blow up thing but they, they didn't they had to scale back well, i guess i'm glad they scaled back <laughs> so, yeah, that's something right out of the rolling stones <laughs> concert from the especially from the well 80s. and i feel like it would cheapen this tour too because this is like a nice like back to basics tour for him it seems to be the vibe like he doesn't have like an elaborate costume anymore he doesn't have i mean i guess he does have like the the yellow hair but other than that he's just like a man in a suit now right like there's no costume there's no alter ego this is just the first kind of real 
David Bowie, or if you will, David Jones tour, right? Yeah. It's a very plain, plain tour. He says that in his on, on that documentary. He says it's the first time I'm kind of just going out as me. But he, there's there's still theatrics. Obviously, he redoes the cracked actor thing, but uh, the theatrics are a little more subtle, and I, where the average concert goer wouldn't be used to his his movements, the choreographing, uh, the 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 costumes that they all. War. It was kind of a parody of the new romantic wave right. of like like Boy George or Culture Club and like it was kind of they each apparently Bowie had a huge say or he was part of the design process for all of the his band up on stage. They're all dressed totally cool. One of them looks kind of like Crocodile Dundee. Up there. Well, I think that it's a global representation. Yeah. Well, and then Slick shows up late, just dressed as kind of himself. Well, he was but added it's like, late, and so it's well, like, ah, you know what? That works. It, it, it's it's representation. Let's yeah, maybe let's get to why Slick was added. Oh, so yeah. so Stevie Ray Vaughan, uh, who of course played the lead guitar on Let's Dance, was originally supposed to be the guitarist on this tour, but leading like during rehearsals. Uh, which started in in New York and then moved to Texas, where uh, where Stevie's from. Uh, Stevie joined the the rehearsals and he had a I just read a nasty coke habit, and Bowie's camp didn't want anything to do with that. And he had a huge Stevie had a huge entourage that just wanted access to drugs, and he was going to bring them on tour with them. And Bowie's camp kind of said, "No, this isn't going to happen." And uh, I'm not exactly sure what happened. Apparently, Bowie wasn't very present during this kind of... He was boarding a flight or something as the the game of chicken was happening. Right. It turns out Stevie pulled out. Whether he was booted or whether he did it voluntarily. I've also read that he wanted to do a little bit of promotion, maybe even open or something like that, because his huge debut album, Texas Flood, was set to come out that summer. And he may or may not have been denied that opportunity to do such a thing. I wouldn't be surprised if he was denied that. I, I, I don't know. Well, it seemed like he had a lot of things he wanted, and his manager was basically like, look, give him these things or he's gone. And they played the game of hardball with him, and okay, well, we're still not doing it. And then his manager kicked him. Like, he said, okay, we're pulling him. So either he was dismissed, he was pulled, but that is just kind of my understanding of it. And the sad thing was uh, the bass player was Carmine Rojas. Is that how you yeah. pronounce it? yeah. He said it was like very like it was theatrical, very dramatic. He he remembers it as like one of the most heartbreaking moments he'd ever seen on the road because Stevie was left standing on the sidewalk with like his bag surrounding him as like I guess the bus took off or something. And it it's was like, like a Simpsons like out of a movie. Yeah, like there he goes. Moment. Like yeah, <laughs> yeah. So luckily he landed on his feet. Uh, he had a great yeah. career ahead of him. But and, and luckily for us, we still have like the we can imagine what the tour would have been like with him because we have that great rehearsals bootleg. You mentioned yeah. there's a lot of bootlegs. Yeah. That's one of the better ones. Maybe we can play a clip or something of one of his best Yeah, I used to have licks. that. It's about two discs. You can hear them shave down songs. And, yeah. And I can't remember which ones they played that weren't added, but it was a good bootleg. I think, like, did, was Joe the Lion a part of this tour? It was. Early. Early, though. It was one kicked, of those ones, yeah. like you said, that got kind of cut early. White, light, white. He or I Can't Explain's another one that I think maybe got cut early, but that's a... Yeah. From what I remember from that boot, like, I mean, like, the rock ones, Stevie Ray was great on, like, uh, Hang On To Yourself. Yeah. That's a good one. Um, yeah, I can't remember, but it it, it is kind of shitty to, like, think, like, we could have had... He would have been great for this tour because that bootleg, I think, really outlines that. But, I mean, Earl Slick's a damn good guitarist, too. And I love the story about uh, when Slick was... Because it was, like, a week before. To learn all that. of this he happened... He's locked in a hotel room. A week before <laughs> this enormous tour is supposed Yeah, and he's not allowed to do blow because there's a no-drug policy on this tour, which I think is another reason that Stevie Ray was pissed off. He wasn't allowed... Because Stevie Ray's the young up-and-coming rock star that wants to party, and they're like, yeah. no, 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 no. We're clean cut now. Well, and his entourage was <laughs> definitely had a part. Yeah, Earl, Earl Slick apparently had lots and lots and lots of pots of coffee. He was just <laughs> locked in a room, and he had to get these, like, it was 31 songs that he had to learn in, like, four days, which isn't a piece of cake. It's, and then go play takes me a while in front to of 2.6 million people over the next <laughs> yeah, year. Yeah, because, like, you know, for us to play, if I was to, you know, join in on guitar, it would take me a couple days to learn a couple of songs. So kudos to Earl Slick for being a, a better guitar player. He's not just playing rhythm either, like... It, it, this becomes once again for the second time that he's been on tour with them. It becomes kind of a slick show in terms of the yeah. music aspect. He 
He's got a super strat. It's he's got a Floyd Rose on it. I'm assuming with all those dive bombs he's doing, yeah. in particular, <laughs> white 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 heat and uh, the beginning of Station to Station. Oh my God! Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they have these things called Floyd Roses, which were made in the late '70s. That you can't, despite all, no matter how much you you hit your your um, your vibrato on the strat. It won't go out of tune. It just holds it steady. If I were to do that with mine, which doesn't have a Floyd Rose, <laughs> it would go out of tune. Uh, yeah, he's brilliant on it once again. His Strat is cool too. It's it's like all red and like like the the fretboard, the headstock, like it's just all red. It looks really <laughs> neat. And there's a funny story. So Mick Ronson in Toronto, in Canada, which is great, played one song on this tour. It was he came on up for the Gene Genie. Oh, is this when he was juggling the guitar? Or whatever? Yeah, and and he said like, you know what? I'm not gonna play a fancy solo because it's this is the slick show. Some I don't want to compete with yeah. that. So I'm just gonna like play as hard as I can you know I'm with Bowie one last or you know again for the first time in nine years I guess and he's like yeah swinging the guitar around and beating the crap out of it apparently Slick was like watch it from like the side (laughs) and and Ronson was like oh I didn't know that was like his holy grail guitar like it was like the Slick guitar (laughs) I thought it was just like some guitar like a piece of wood with six strings on it and I was beating the shit out of it (laughs) but yeah so that's kind of neat that Ronson was on this tour, albeit, you know, five minutes, maybe. Well, one thing that I thought was interesting uh, that Slick said, and he made note of this, it was that unlike on previous tours and his previous stint with David Bowie, there was, like, a lot more joking around and fooling around this time. Like, there, and there was a lot more communication, too. Like, in the old days, he'd show up at the theater, like, Slick would show up to play, and he, he wouldn't see Bowie until they were into the first number of the set, you know what I mean? And then he'd he'd appear for the start of the show, then he'd disappear. It was kind of, like, very pretentious superstar shit, right? And there was a time where when he would, for all intents and purposes, he'd announce the sacking of his band members live to the audience, right? He wasn't ever really in close communication with them, but that's obviously yeah. not the case here. He's, like I said, this is more like the David Jones tour. He's just, a, he's a... He's a human being again. He's interacting with his band. He's having a lot of fun, and it seems like the spirits were at an all-time high. I think for this tour, and and that translates to the music because the music is very happy-go-lucky as well. That, like I, I mentioned earlier, that, that doom and gloom is totally gone. Yeah. I absolutely love the arrangements with the horns. Yeah, yeah. so Al, unbelievable. It, it, it's perfect for it. it kind of redefined these songs. It yeah. turned them into like. Some of them were dooming, like Breaking Glass, Bra- for example. I was just, Breaking Glass is the perfect with the, example. With the horns, the yeah. I've got that written right down, up, Breaking yeah. Glass. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's Alomar again doing the, he's the arranger again. He's the musical he's doing arranger. The horn, yeah. horn arrangements. So on horns, um, we've got, there's three of them. Steve Elson, Stan Harrison, and Lenny Pickett. That's a good name, Lenny Pickett. Um... Frank and George Sims on backing vocals. I'm assuming that they're brothers. I don't know. I don't know how many S I M M S there would be together on tour. Maybe they weren't. I'm assuming they were. Uh, Dave LeBolt on keyboards and synths. Uh, he's got a shining moment, I think, during Scary Monsters. The synths. Is like, he the one where they have the close ups of his face and he's making weird, scary faces? Or he's doing that, that thing with his. making those glasses. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, Tony Thompson of Chic. Uh, and Let's Dance, of course, on drums. And, yeah, you mentioned Johnny Carmine Rojas on bass. And Elmar was the rhythm guitarist and musical director. Well, yeah, solid, solid band. I had a quote here from Bowie just to, to talk about, because, like, those horn arrangements, they really liven the songs up, right? And so here's what Bowie has to say. He said, Before I've had up to three synthesizers on stage... The music had sort of industrial, mechanized, or mechanicized sounding connotations to it. That's another aspect I want to lighten up on. The choice of musicians helped because they're not familiar with my music, so they've interpreted it more from a soul-based background. Inherently, there's a lighter-hearted characteristic coming through the music than if I had used my original musicians who had it in their minds, oh yeah, I know Bowie, he wants there's the yes. doom and gloom in here. So I think that uh, this is kind of... Cause I, if we kept doing Bowie concerts and he's doing the same live songs, we would get bored of doing this, right? But they, I, I'm not bored of doing Bowie tours and concerts and live albums yet because this, these are redefined, freshened up versions. And to be honest with you, I do prefer the kind of more doom and gloom side of them, but I think they work in the context of this tour so well. The horn arrangements are just like, this is his let's dance, let's get back to the 50s, yeah. good old time fun rock and roll. And they really make, I can see why this was Bowie at his peak 
in popularity because how the hell could you can you imagine going to this show and being upset like I, that'd be pretty tough <laughs> like what he did with uh, fame with those horns yeah that's Amazing. really good I love the yeah like the songs on low are great uh what in the world? The medley he does, yeah. Yeah, but he does what in the world? And you mentioned Breaking Glass. It's they're such happy, and that you know we we did talk about it on the Low album episode where it was, you know that that is a very juxtaposed, <laughs> you know, set of emotions on that. It's funny. I just said it too. I just said the Low album. He says that a lot. He says that during like the Heathen era tour. He goes on, he's like, oh, we're going to do the Low album later. There's some theatrics there. Bands, and they're not utilized, they're playing cards. <laughs> and uh, we're, we're watching the show. Oh, and yeah. The, the, the uh, synthesizer guys or whatever are playing cards right now. <laughs> Slick's just playing above them. Great yeah, band. He says the Low album then. He says it on here too. We're going to do one from the Low album now. It's almost like he's trying to sell it still. Like he's going like you know RCA rejected this the it didn't sell like you know there was more of a critical there was darling. that huge, huge festival in '83 with it was a two day festival in a desert with all the big stars of the time and he opened his set with what in the world <laughs> <laughs> it was like it was a massive amount of people that's the one I think I mentioned where it was a that festival where there was like two hundred and fifty thousand yeah. or something yeah and he his opening song is what in the world. I saw that he was part of the rock night. There was apparently like a heavy metal night, yeah. a rock night, a country <laughs> night. Is the rock night the one where there was like uh, brawls and deaths and shit like that? Uh, there I there were a couple deaths it. at that. Yeah. What's okay. it called? The U.S. Festival, I think. It's, but the, the, there's a documentary on it on Tubi, but there's no Bowie footage, I guess, rights or something. But. Right. Hmm. It was uh, Van Halen, I saw, yeah, The, the Clash, U2, uh, Stevie Nicks, Pretenders... That might have been it, but yeah, I just like I didn't know about that until we were we were reading up for this. Apparently, there was like a, a huge brawl at one point during, and there was like deaths and a uh, hundred arrests or something like that, maybe even more. But Altamont, pretty yeah, pretty well. It's <laughs> funny because you know they there was that '99 Woodstock documentary that just came out, and they kind of try to paint it like oh, it's the new generation. They're so you know, it's not like it was in the old days, but it's like this happened in the '60s, this <laughs> happened, in the, yeah. and if you think about it too. The interesting generational angle in the 99 Woodstock thing is that those kids have been totally alienated and exploited and are exhausted by consumerism and capitalism and the corporate stuff, the bullshit that was done directly by the Woodstock 60s generation. You know what I mean? Like, they, they get painted like, oh, they were such great, peaceful hippies in the 60s, but it's like, the reason that the 99 kids are so pissed off is because of the mm -hmm. 60s. Those same, same so-called... Same old thing and brand new drive. Yes, exactly. <laughs> they go back to ancient Rome they gathered to watch people kill each other <laughs> like, well and in that uh, Ricochet documentary there's that really interesting scene where Bowie's talking to the cab driver and he's talking about how, like if you get caught with 20 cents worth of drugs that you get hanged wow yeah and Bowie's kind of talking with the the cab driver like oh, I don't know who he was if he was a limousine driver or what but Bowie was very fascinated during that whole ricochet documentary about the ins and outs of this, these different cultures and he has kind of a lot of the same questions that we would you know it, it, he's like it, a sponge yes going he, through and yeah he's driving around and he, where do you want to go see new buildings or old buildings you know, no I want to see the old buildings and oh, they're tearing a lot of them down hey he's kind of like He's, he's kind of like us, you know what I mean? Like, this is kind of how I would act if I was out. He goes to play, East. like, xylophone with those kids yeah, in school and stuff. He was really soaking in the culture. He said in the Moon Age, or uh, Morgan showed in the Moon Age Daydream documentary, him saying, I never waste a day. And I, I believe it. Because I was just thinking about, like, what he was doing this year. Like, he, he's got two movies at Cannes Film Festival. He's got a new album out. He's touring the world. He's designing every last inch of his band's costumes. <laughs> he's putting the, this, you know, the, this whole tour together. He's got another album he's going to put out next year. Like he, like this guy doesn't and, sleep. And that never waste a day thing is why I kind of had such an issue with the backlash to the Moon Age docu, Moon Age Daydream documentaries because like I left the theater like appreciating and understanding life more. It was like a psychedelic, mind expanding experience that I walked away from it and. Because you get a, a glimpse into the mind of David Bowie in that movie, and it's such a, it's such a fascinating mind, and it's for moments like that in that documentary where I'm like, wow, like this is this is a, it's such a, it was a very moving piece, and that was uh, 
it was kind of disappointing to see some of the, the negative reviews that maybe weren't understanding the angle of the documentary, but we'll, uh, I think we might revisit that documentary for an, a, a future episode, so yeah. I'll hold some of those thoughts, and we'll get back to the serious Moonlight tour. Yeah, so, Justin, you were there. Uh, you must have some highlights from from the show, and just, like, the overall atmosphere of, oh, my yeah, God, Bowie's coming. Yeah, we were up high, so back then there was no screens, so we all brought binoculars. No, yeah. I had uh, a silver moon with glitter. I don't know if you can make out in this photo on my cheek. We'll tweet this photo out. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. Yeah, we've got a photo that uh, one of my a family friend got right up front, and she was actually interviewed by the local news, and she got one of the best pictures of the tour, I think. <laughs> It's, that it's is really a great good. shot. It could have been a promo poster. Yeah. Well, they look like they're posing for it too because they're. We have to tweet this out because no one listening can <laughs> see it. <laughs> yeah. Let's describe this. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, art on the radio. I've got a little uh, newspaper clipping in the picture. It says, "35 thousand fans see Bowie. An estimated 35 fans turned up at Winnipeg Stadium Wednesday night to catch David Bowie's last Canadian show of his Serious Moonlight Tour '83." The crowd, generally ranging from age 14 to the shy side of 30, was ready to embrace his both new and old. And I can't see the frame. All those, <laughs> all those surveyed agreed that the $23 admission charge, while expensive, wasn't too much to bear. <laughs> Worth it. Yeah, yeah. So you made it below the estimated craft. Yeah. <laughs> 11. <laughs> Did he open with uh, "Look Back in Anger" for? Yes, yeah, that was that was a uh, spine hair raising, chilling, all that stuff. Uh, the music starts. He, I knew the song very well, and uh, he comes out walking backwards. Yeah, and he sings great. the whole first verse with his back facing the crowd, and you're waiting like, well, "What's he doing? <laughs> like, is, is this the whole show?" And then the crescendo. He turns around, look back in anger, and the crowd just goes nuts. It's the perfect opener, isn't it? For that reason, yeah. like you can turn around and say, "Look back at anger," and that's your, your own introduction. <laughs> and that, that's your introduction. Turning around and saying, "Look back at anger," but also because for the, I think it's his best opening lyric, arguably. You know who I am. He said, "I mean, you can't open a concert yeah. with a better line." Like, what a great line! I don't know. Because when I was looking at the. Uh, the set list, I don't think this was the initial opener. It was like Gene Genie and Star or something like that. It was like a couple... He did that, that kind of bluesy Gene Genie mm-hmm. intro, I think. Uh, and then it goes into Snoop, another rock it? song. It Was it Star? I can't remember. But then eventually he goes, no, no, no. Look back in anger is how we start this. Yeah. Like somewhere along the way, he made one of the best choices ever, which was to open Look Back in Anger. What an opener. And his opening in the last episode, we just covered Merry Christmas Mr. Lawrence and it starts with the back of his head. Yeah. So if you were to just catch the first like you know It's like singing a concert the first oh, wait, 30 seconds. Going on yeah. here. Yeah. What's going on here? No, Bowie's dead, just like you know, Paul's dead. <laughs> he wasn't looking at the camera at the beginning of those two things in eighty three. Yeah, I haven't even been able to listen to that episode yet, but uh I'll look forward to that. Maybe even tonight. Because I love that movie. That was uh big at the time too. Uh, it was tough being a Bowie fan at the at this age though because uh, we were talking about those festivals metal was becoming mm-hmm. really popular and I've always been preaching Diamond Dogs and Ziggy to the, my friends and everything <laughs> like this is really this guy's really heavy and then he comes out with the poppiest album <laughs> yeah. Yeah. ever and I'm walking around Sizzler <laughs> with a Scary Monsters back patch and everything and Dylan <laughs> still has that <clears throat> and uh, he's coming up with the most poppiest stuff and I'm trying to explain no there's more to him than this and yeah and that was during the weird experiment Sisler did with uh, grade let's try grade 7 to 12 <laughs> so you're Sisler's the high school that all three of us happen to go to yeah, at sorry. different times yeah <laughs> so that experiment failed miserably people went to jail <laughs> teachers and students <laughs> it must have sucked for you too because okay he does the pop album but at least it's successful everyone kind of likes it but then he follows it up with oh tonight was just a kill me now. and then after that it's yeah. like come on i, I was right yeah. you know <laughs> like he was great yeah i i, I was aladdin saying that year for the 83 and then was it 85 anyway i was the genie from blue jean for Halloween at, at Sisler at our high school, and that didn't go over very well. <laughs> are those knickers are you wearing? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that was 
uh, other highlights of the show was our uncle Chris popping the uh, the world balloon. <laughs> yeah, there's. <laughs> so I yeah I saw that on stage here. So he popped one of those. Hey, eh? yeah, was he was right up front, and we all watched it, and uh, all of a sudden it explodes right in front of the stage, and Bowie laughs like he's never seen that before. And after the concert, our uncle, who shaved his eyebrows for Edmonton, uh, was holding this big blue piece of <laughs> earth balloon, which he kept in his room forever. <laughs> He's like six foot five or yeah. something. So I can picture him in the middle. Oh, what? <laughs> so there was that. We had a rough trade opening for us. We were known, a Canadian band known for a controversial hit, High School Confidential. We were a little let down because Edmonton had the tubes and they had She's a Beauty up that year. I think they were, that was a huge hit. It's a Rough Trade, is that what the record label's named after? Oh, I don't know. Because Rough Trade's like one of the best like labels out there. It's like Parquet Course or Were or Our Side to Them. That would be, I'm going to look into that. Look at, uh, yeah, actually the song kind of goes with our grade 7 to 12 experiment. <laughs> You'll know it if you hear it. Apparently Bowie was in great shape, thanks in part to training like a boxer. So he took that seriously, that cover. I, we were I wondering about that when we did the episode, yeah. And apparently he was doing it for his stamina for the show. Yeah, it's Box. like uh, somebody said something about, you know, a song is approximately like a round in boxing, so you I guess 15 rounds that, yeah. and you, <laughs> you should be in good shape. Well, I think that illustrates what we were talking about earlier, too, with the, you know, this is... This isn't a drug tour, this isn't a party tour, this isn't a, a bullshit tour, like, this is... Because in previous years, Bowie was just, you know, he's fucked up on cocaine or whatever, but now, now, now he's, like, in phys like physically good shape. He's boxing, he's talking with the crowd, he's talking with the audience. Uh, not that he didn't ever talk to the crowd before, but... Yeah, you know, Bowie's kind of, he's, he's, he's a very happy guy and healthy guy I now. Like it's, it's very nice to see Bowie at this, you know, point in his life. I like how when he does the band introductions... In this Sydney show that is now available on YouTube, um, he he does the band introductions and then he looks at the crowd and says, "And you." And he starts laughing and then he says, "Okay, what's your first name? What's your first name?" And then he says, "Okay, everybody, all at once, what's what, give me your first name? One, That's two, three, idea. and they all yell it out." And he laughs and he says, "So, and I'm me. And I'm gonna play guitar here." And he starts like laughing and they, like he's just having such a good time. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a couple of moments too where where Carmine and and Carlos are on stage and they're just kind of like goofing around and yeah. dancing and like like here it is right here we're watching it. like they're <laughs> they're doing shuffle steps and stuff and it, yeah oh, well I, and you know what so I have never been a fan of the song Let's Dance but I kind of got a newfound appreciation for it like going through all this footage because there's something about like when the song comes on first of all the crowd just erupts like I've never like. It, all the, the Let's Dance songs on this album, if you listen to the live album and you watch the performances, the crowd just goes fucking crazy when the Let's Dance songs come on. And, uh, yeah, I got this newfound appreciation for Let's Dance because when you're watching it, you see how the, the crowd reacts to it. And you, you just see Bowie's face. He's pointing at the people in the crowd. He's smiling. He's laughing with them as he performs. And it, it kind of tugs at your heartstrings when you just think, like, God damn, like, this was the little chap from London who was doing mime and singing rubber band and trying so desperately hard to make it. To do know? this. To and, do and, this exactly. Right. And here he is playing in front of, what was that one crowd he played in front of? Like 80,000 80, just for him. 80,000 just for him, 150 yeah. for the, the festival. Like, it's just... Well, like, what, he, like, I, I don't know the population of, of Auckland or, or of New Zealand, uh total but like like i'd like to see the percentage of people well, it, it's that almost, were at that show it's like uh green bay has their stadium holds more people than the city holds you know what i mean like there's more <laughs> there's more packers fans than there are people that live in the city that they play in like that's right. that's a very high percentage i feel like this bowie what do you have the numbers there or no no, uh, no. there's i mean there's probably like i don't know there's probably well over a million people in yeah. that city. <laughs> 10% of them showed up. That's pretty yeah, good. Let's just, well. <laughs> uh, are there... So, so, what are your, some of your favorite songs from this? Like, have you listened to any of the... Oh, yeah. The, uh, my daughter, Maisie, uh, she's two and a half, and she is... She, for whatever reason, about, about half a year ago, 
bit more. She fell in love with Bowie at Live Aid. It was just, you know, it, it was on and she was just into it. And then, I, well, there's, I couldn't listen to those four songs much more because it was like, oh, boy, I've heard these a hundred times. There's more from this era, like trying to show, because she wants, yeah. needs to be live. She's, yeah, she's very, uh, very, she's got a very high vocabulary for a two-year-old. <laughs> got to be a live version, Dad, live version. So I showed her this whole thing and she's, I, I've listened to this like inside and out. Um I, I, you know what? They're all just very solid. If I had to pick a favorite, uh, I don't even know. I'll tell you which ones don't maybe ring as well as they sometimes do. Not particularly the best version of Heroes or Life on Mars. They're Life not really, on Mars. For they're sure. not really. Dis- they're not designed to be played like you were just mentioning. How perfect Let's Dance is in this scenario. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, I get you're gonna do your great all-time perfect slow song for these tours, but. I mean, it's it's far from a, a bathroom break. Whereas uh, fame and young Americans are through the roof. Right. Well, yeah. And also, like with Life on Mars too, um, for that song, I, like I prefer like his high pitched English accent that he does on the album. Here, he kind of is maybe starting to lose that a little bit. He does a very low register for Life on Mars. He's kind of a Wonder if you'll ever know Instead of Wonder if you'll never know Like I kind of I prefer the latter I think uh, Carson Show in 80 Was the last time He hit the falsetto Mm -hmm. And this is 83 right So like He's kind of Lost a little bit Of the magic That made a song Like Life on Mars I think as special As it was Not that this performance Is bad But I I definitely agree That of my least Favorite performances Life on Mars Which is like My favorite Bowie song Or one of them Of all time is kind of like my least favorite moment of the show. But I feel like that's sorrow comes across real good though. Sorrow yes, is it's a great follow yeah, up. It's almost a bit of a medley the way he does those two. And I, and sorrow, and, and I think what I was trying to get at earlier too is it's I don't think necessarily that the slow songs don't work for this tour because every now and again you do need that. Oh, you cool need bring it. it down. Yeah. It worked for sorrow, not for life on Mars. Sorrow, sorrow, I think is actually it's a bit more upbeat. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess because this is a very horn heavy album. Or horn heavy mm. tour. It's the perfect. The horn, yeah, it, it like sorrow just mixed well with everything else that was going with this tour a lot more, and that is one of my one of the better moments. Sorrow, because this is like the greatest hits tour, right? He's doing hits again, and he's got such a catalog at this point. Like this is over a decade's worth of hits now, and he, and even some of these songs, like you said, what in the world earlier, uh, breaking glass, like sorrow. I don't think was a big hit. Like some of these songs aren't even big hits, but they're just such great commercial songs still. Anyway, because yeah. Bowie's one of those artists that, let's say he's got fifteen greatest hits, he's also got like eighty great commercial songs that anybody would love. Well, he yeah. If this is the hits tour, he left half his hits off. Yeah, like there's no yeah. Ziggy, there's no Suffragette City, there's no he does Space Oddity, but and he kind of throughout the tour he drops Ziggy ones more often than not. Like the songs that get dropped tend to be Ziggy period ones from what I remember. And he replaced them Star, though. Star, Hang On to Yourself, um, there, there might be a couple more. I think more. Star's on this, so maybe he brought it back because this is the late, one of the last songs but of the tour. I, I do remember hearing a quote of him saying, like, I just couldn't do that Ziggy shit anymore. Like, he couldn't, like, he was too old. Like, he was like, he didn't have the energy for it anymore. Well, nine years later. Yeah, and a lot <laughs> of drugs later. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm not shocked. What did he do from the album? Let's Dance, Cat Cat People. people. Modern, Modern love. love and China Girl. That's it. Yeah, that's about right. That's half the album. Yeah, that's Probably easy. good choices. The only other song I think might translate would be Shake It. Yeah, I would have loved to have heard a live version of Shake yeah, It. Yeah, Shake It would have been good. <laughs> we we okay. championed Shake It on our <laughs> podcast. I, to, I don't know. I, it's one of the better songs on that album. It says yeah. a little bit about I, the I album. I like it better but... than Cat People. And you know how like, this this uh, show rekindled my love for Let's Dance. Or not rekindled. I never really had a love for Let's Dance, but I kind of, you know, appreciate it a little bit more in this environment. Cat People wasn't saved by this environment for me. I did, When Cat People came on when I was watching this concert footage, I was like, eh, I'm bored again. <laughs> I kind of don't like that song. <laughs> and then this concert... The soundtrack could, version of, is... A hundred, but the soundtrack version is superb. Superior. And I think much. that maybe is yeah. why I hate hearing all these renditions of it, is because that version... I do love so the guitar better. lick, though, in this Lyndall, Nile Rogers version. The intro, the... That's real. That's but then it kind of then it goes away. And it's a small song. percent. Small percentage <laughs> Down, of the song downhill yeah. from there. <laughs> Comes back later, but and then it goes away again. Yeah. I just have the uh, extended mix of that in '83. I can't even remember what it sounds like. 
There was a lot of really cool dance mixes yeah. and remixes and re everything. Every artist in that period was doing that dub mix and remix and, and all that. It was supposed to be like released as an album, I think. Maybe it had limited runs or something, but once again, the Bowie Era 4 box set compiled a bunch of them and put them out. I think Shake It was on that one. Yeah, there's a mix of that. Along then the, the majority of them, though, are from Tonight and Never Let Me Down. Maybe a couple singles, I don't know. Did you notice uh, when they do Ashes to Ashes, that's one that kind of gets a, l- a little bit redefined. Um, the bass line is a lot different during the performance. Like, usually the bass is going boom, boom, boom. It's slapping. Boom, 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 and it's kind of going up and down. Here it's like a lot more textural. It's just... Oh, did, does Carmine not slap on it? No, uh, the version that I listened to okay. on the way here, it was... It was like I said. It was like a lot more rhythmic and textural than it was melodic. And I like. I mean, I prefer the album version and all that. But it was nice. It was very cool to see a a, a very integral part of the song kind of redefined. It was a. a That's what live versions are all about. It's you, you did it this way once. If you want to listen to it that way, listen to the yeah. album. And I feel <laughs> Come like come to the show and see something cool <laughs> and different, which he totally dives into the next decade. Which can't oh, wait to get yeah, into that. Yeah. <laughs> but it's neat that yeah. I mean. You know, you can go all the way back to how totally different, um, what, what was it, Panic in Detroit is in the Diamond Dogs tour. Oh, yeah. It's just, like, totally redefined. Panic in Detroit, I think I said, is maybe my least favorite song on Aladdin Sane, but it's one of my favorite songs from that tour. You don't, like, yeah. that's that's the best part yeah. of it. another live one that music. they, they liven it up a bit. It's maybe a with little horns. Again, with as Justin said, too, you add horns to a song and it sometimes it's just the perfect spot. I feel like they might have like amped the rhythm up. The drums might be a little they busier. Did. Yeah. Because the drums are kind of more like Congo. Is that the one with the 20 minute drums solo? Yeah. Yeah. Which I wasn't hugely impressed with. I'm not into drum solos. When, I, when I'm into them, they're a lot, they gotta be like more hypnotic or something. That one was just kind of, I don't know. I, 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 I do. I'm seeing them, but I just don't like listening to them after. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <fair. laughs> right. It's like you go to the show. Yeah. Oh, cool. <laughs> Go to the bathroom. <laughs> Come <Yeah>. back. How <laughs> often do we listen to the key? Sorry, all the drummers way through, up there <laughs> from the Guess Who. <laughs> yeah. Any, yeah, any Guess Who listener or fans out there? <laughs> That's one of the most underrated psych jams of the that period, though. The key, like key, is a great Guess Who song. Uh, check that song out if you're listening. <laughs> this is the Winnipeg episode. We're talking about the show. <laughs> There's the, the Guess Who. Uh, when, so when he did one of those East performances when I, I can't remember where he was he might have been in Hong Kong but he did imagine on the anniversary of John Lennon so that death. was actually the final show of the tour and uh, it was actually Earl Slick's idea who also played with with Lennon on he said uh, we, double fantasy we should do a tribute milk uh, and honey yeah he said we should do across the universe yeah, and yeah. they they rehearsed across the universe and Bowie said ah oh, if we're gonna do it let's just do imagine yeah. <laughs> which wasn't quite as you know memeable back then as it is now but it's interesting because I do think Bowie did a decent job yeah I thought so too because I kind of have like a lot of thoughts about the song imagine like I, I think it's it's a fantastic song but I, I also hate pretty much every cover that I've heard of it. Other, like this Bowie one I didn't hate. Uh, and, and I also hate most songs that are cut from the same cloth as Imagine. Like a, a song like Imagine, it can come off as very hokey, right? It's a yeah. rich celebrity telling you Imagine No Possessions, uh, telling you how to think. And, and you know, that can be like, okay, you, you sound like a cheese ball, right? Easy for you to say Imagine No Possessions, but what the hell do you know? You know, shut up, I don't want to hear it. But I do think there's like a certain layer of context that's very important for a song like Imagine, which is that like John Lennon was a notoriously cynical man. Like this is a cheese ball kind of a message that he's putting across, but it's coming from a person who's very much not a cheese ball, right? Like he was always very angry at the world. Like we, what's that Yellow Submarine demo that just came out where he's going hmm. in yeah. the town that <laughs> I was born, no, no one cares. cares. No one cares. So <laughs> that layer of corniness is missing, right? Because of who it's it's coming from. John Lennon's on a cheese ball, a very cynical man. But then there's also kind of how he delivers his message. He rids himself of ego, and he does the song very gently on the piano with no in-your-face lyrical flourishes. Right? Like, most covers go wild. Like, imagine all the people! You know, yeah, they're going ep- They're trying to make it all epic in that, yeah. and they make it about themselves, which totally strips the spirit of the song away from itself. But Bowie doesn't do that. It's like, Bowie fucking got Imagine more than... Like, nobody has ever gotten that song but he did and you know he 
imagine it's kind of like it's like the truest socialist anthem. It's like like not one person or one thing is greater than anything else or can outshine the other, and the other covers always miss that. But Bowie had a kind of like an, an understanding of John Lennon. Yet there's that great clip of him where he's talking about him, where he says that you know John was one of the brightest, most quick-witted men I ever know. He was and he was a very earnestly socialist man. He's one of the most socialist men I ever met in my life, and socialist in the true definition, right? Like not like a fabricated political sense but a real humanist I think is what he called him and so I just feel like Bowie is like the only guy to cover Imagine because he's the only one that, with like a real understanding of John Lennon and that song and he didn't ruin it I mean bravo to Bowie for not ruining Imagine if anyone's entitled to cover it it would be him yes well he also covered Mother in the 90s which that's a hard one to, to pull off and I thought he did a decent job of it it didn't feel I mean it can't come from the same place that Lennon obviously came from um, but he, I thought he, you know, that's that's a very uh, risky song to cover. And he also did yeah. a great job of trying to get to heaven, the Bob Dylan song. That, like Two of my favorite songs of all time, I might add. Right, yeah. yeah. That aren't necessarily popular choices. Maybe Mother, but certainly not trying to get to heaven. Yeah. We like Bowie, can you tell? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, and, and Dylan and John Lennon. And Dylan and Lennon. Because I do... I, like the cover version, but I, the, the originals are my favorite songs. Of course, time, yeah. <laughs> uh, No disrespect. Someone who I lo- like almost as much, or on par, is Brian Wilson, who we will get to. As much, for Bowie sure. covering covers him very shortly. <laughs> uh, for better or for worse. He covers a lot of people on the next album. It's almost like... I wonder when when the, uh, the internal conflict, <clears throat> how soon after the tour, or if it was happening during the tour, <clears throat> that where he's started getting confused of am I a people pleaser or am I an artist well that's what's interesting that's interesting yeah because he's he's now playing to an audience that like he never imagined he'd ever conquer right which it's a blessing and a curse on one hand it's great he's played to nearly I think it was like three million people on this tour right like really close to and he sold a trillion records but I as Bowie put it many years later I have the quote here as he said he suddenly didn't know who his audience was and worse he didn't care about them so it's like in years past there was a greater degree of intimacy, right? Like yeah. it's not like David was just some cult artist who was strictly underground, but there was more of like a mutual understanding in place between him and the audience. And I think connecting with that audience is a huge ingredient in the David Bowie magic. So now that he's lost his understanding or that connection or whatever you want to call it, now that he's lost that, he, he's also sort of lost his sense of artistic direction, right? He doesn't really know where to go from here. Whereas before, he always had a plan. Every album had this concise sound and a vision and an idea that he, he mapped out and he executed for this very personal audience, like the Sigma Kids, right? But tonight is almost like an album just for the sake of making an album. He's doing covers. There's a disconnect between him and the people he's making it for because he doesn't even know who they are. I, I think this tour was, like I said, a blessing and a curse in the, on the extreme ends of both, both spectrums. How long between the end of the tour and until he went into the studio not very long not, it, it, he should have had a break because this was way too big of a tour right yeah. like this was had to have been exhausting so okay I'm gonna look it up I, I know it was quick yeah I, I'm curious to hear how what the specific time is so the tour ended in December of 83 oh tonight comes out 84 it must have been quick he recorded it okay May of 84 in Canada uh, in Montreal yeah what was so, he doing early 84? Was he still busy at all? Not writing. Well, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, I shouldn't say that because one of my favorite Bowie songs does come from that time, but we'll save that for the next. It's probably the same as mine then. Yeah. Uh, so five months to come off this mammoth tour, write, a, write an album. Write an album, and so he wasn't feeling that, so okay, we'll do covers. He wasn't really into the production, so but we're we're getting ahead of ourselves i just wanted to know the time frame uh, but it is a very interesting talking point because that is where we're going next and it's like you can kind of see it's not blatantly obvious quite yet but the roots are in place for why the next couple of albums are maybe going to be not as most popular right i mean and like whatever you think of tonight or never let me down maybe you like them maybe you think they're underrated but a large amount of people don't agree with you, and I think it's that disconnect we were talking about. He doesn't know who his audience anymore. I think that's the reason why... Because maybe you like it, and that's cool, but he used to have a knack for connecting with everyone, and that's kind of starting to dissipate a little bit, and it's 
I think you can blame this tour for how it confused him, how it was bigger than he imagined, and I don't know, you, you can kind of, in retrospect, you know, we have history on our side, we can see it easily now, but you can kind of see why but the th 80s were what they were to But him. think about it, coming off this mammoth endeavor that he, he just did, uh, like, five months into the studio, five months ago was May for us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. like, I didn't accomplish... Time? Tonight in five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and if he truly isn't skipping any days, he, it's not like he was just sitting around doing nothing. I'm yeah. sure he was doing stuff still. Mm -hmm. Like I, I, I can't picture him relaxing. Although I guess he does kind of. Did he do Iggy's album in between? And I think he did blah, something. Blah blah blah. blah, blah, blah. Was that was oh, later. okay, that was later. Yeah. yeah. I feel like he had to have done something because from what I, like what I remember reading in Bowie books over the years is that there just wasn't enough of a break and maybe even the five months is just enough for it to not have been long enough I, technically it's only four months you know the end of April well you know what it, it, this feels like to me is this is like the final crap roll where it goes in your favor everyone's gathering around the table now Good. everybody's <laughs> at the show you got 80,000 people in New Zealand you're and, in a nice powder blue shirt rolling you know, come on snake that. eyes <laughs> fucking snake eyes happens again and then tonight is the next roll, and, the and everybody's like, "Oh, the dice! They, the yeah. dice don't even land on the table." And then, <laughs> and then, well, you know, to, to finish my metaphor, and I, I may champion never let me down a little bit. It's like you said, uh, it's n people aren't going to agree and, and say that this is the, a great album, and I'm not even going to say it's a great album. It's it's far from a great album, but I kind of like it. Um, but that's it. You know, I'm not going to say this is like an album that people need to check out. But it's like now nobody's paying attention anymore because you you had that dud dice yeah. roll and now you know you you roll something again and it's like hey, oh, this guy's it's... cold let's go to the next table yeah. he's winning hey yeah and, it's, and then I know, it's never let me down is kind of like the hey that's you know it's, it's something but there's some there's bigger things once again keep, I'll never forgive him this was all happening during my high school formative years <laughs> we <were trying> to... <laughs> Tin Machine came out at the end of grade 12 or something I'm like hey, I told you so <laughs> this is like a voodoo doll for you you're getting like oh, stop <laughs> yeah like by the time I was a super Bowie fan I had some great albums to be like, see, he's great. Like, <laughs> like, like you know, Black Star, for example. Like, on the next day. You know what? I wasn't crazy into the next day when it came out. Maybe it was too much, too big, too many stuff. It was I don't a big know. deal because it was like a. Well, at the least 90s ten, was, came out of nowhere. At too. least 10 years since he'd done a, done a record, right? And it just showed it up on everybody's 10. YouTube recommendations. Yeah. <laughs> there was no it was secret and everything. And but, yeah, it had been a while. We thought he was dead for a while. <laughs> well, maybe not really, but he, you know, he had that. Very very scary. I remember googling a lot. Like, what the fuck's he doing? Yeah, what's like, he up to? Yeah, <laughs> right. Like, because he never announced a retirement. No, right? he never was like, I'm done for me. I've seen more people retire and then come back two years later, like right. Jay Z and shit like that. He just had the health scare and then kind of was quiet for a decade. Really. I mean, he did that performance uh, with with Garson and Alicia Keys, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that was kind of it. That was like, but that was like oh six or oh seven mm -hmm. or something. And then what? Next day's fourteen, thirteen, twenty thirteen. Yeah. All right. So closing thoughts on the tour. Anybody? I've kind of said my piece. Which. It was I a guess. fantastic experience for me. One that I'll never forget. And uh, all our my friends were. I think we're about three three miles from the. Uh, Stadium said they were all listening to it on a hill, Garbage uh, Hill. Yeah, yeah. Even in yeah. even in Willow, they, everybody could hear it. It was uh, the loudest concert that Winnipeg had experienced at the time. Uh, just a huge memory, and it was the first of four, and probably one of the most memorable because of that. It was finally seeing your idol. Yeah, that's a it's, special it was feeling. Just an unbelievable feeling that I I can still feel it in my heart today. I remember see, when we, Johnny and I, we traveled to Toronto to see Paul uh, McCartney in... 2009? 2008, maybe? Something like that. Eight or nine, yeah. And, yeah, I, like, that's the closest I'd ever... You know, we never got to see Bowie. And that was, like, I, I remember you... You were young back then. You would have been, like, 13. Still a teenager. Yeah. Well, young, like, 13 yeah. or 14 or something. And... I remember you said to me, like, my heart doesn't feel good. Like, you were, like, like, were kind of, like, nervous. You are going, like, my heart's, like, really yeah. racing right now. And I was 
kind of feeling the same thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, so four times. So what were the four? This glass spider uh, reality, I guess. 90, right? the greatest hits. Sound and Vision. Sound and Vision. Sure, yeah. 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 And then reality. Could you pick a favorite of the of the four? I mean, aside, if you take the first... I think 87 was the best experience because I got right up there. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. My friends left me. <laughs> I was I stayed by myself. Oh, another thing. Okay, remember how uh, RCA was cashing in on, which we didn't touch on, on Sirius Moonlight. Right. And uh, right. Ziggy Stardust was released, the motion picture. Yeah. So right. me and two girls went, because they were thinking, a oh, David Bowie movie, it's going to be all about Let's Dance. <laughs> we went to the Capitol Theater, and uh, the Ziggy Stardust motion picture starts playing, and they didn't make it past the guitar solo in uh, Width of a Circle. <laughs> <laughs> they said... Uh, this isn't modern law. Yeah, he's doing the mind thing. Where's China Girl at all? He's, he's <laughs> trying to escape out of a box. He's in solitary <laughs> confinement. Yeah. But they didn't even know he looked like that at any yeah. given time. They, so it was... Uh, I still Facebook friends with the two girls. I'll have to bring that up. Once again, uh, you're there by yourself yeah, watching. They, they left me. They, and I said, well, I'll be catching a bus home myself. I gotta see this. <laughs> I, I suppose it's worth mentioning, too, he came back to the Hammersmith Odeon for this. He, he made a stop to one intimate venue for this. I believe it's the only one. And it was the Hammersmith Odeon. Right, I remember reading that, too. Ha that doesn't hold many people. How many? A yeah. few thousand? White Light White Heat was released as a single. Mm -hmm. Oh, cool. It was kind of cool. He went back. It's probably like the 10-year Ziggy anniversary almost, right? Did he, was it maybe on the, is that why he went back? Was it like literally the 10th year from that day? <laughs> well, no. Because 73 is when Hammersmith is. Oh, it could have been. Yeah, you're right. Maybe. maybe. That would have been pretty, uh, pretty kind of cosmic alignment there. But yeah, he apparently he, he played there. Uh, that would have been interesting to see that, you know, these songs in that setting would probably be awkward, but it would probably be also simultaneously <laughs> cool for that reason because it's just so, such a juxtaposition. Yeah, Slick kind of brings some of the older songs into the 80s on this tour, just with his playing. Well, like, I don't know what's up. We have Slick, he's on our TV screen right now. I'm picturing, like, Hang On To Yourself or something. Like, that's, yeah, that's what he looks like. He looks like he's doing Hang On To Yourself. He kind of looks like Keith Richards with the headband. Yeah, he does. Knopfler or whatever. You know, he's got the... I, I like... Uh, for, for a guy who wasn't uh, given the costumes, and he, he just shows up as himself, he really works in that i i think he, he he looks phenomenal and i think it's kind of funny that he it was totally unprepared but it worked anyway because it's just earl slick's a cool just lackadaisical fucking rock just you know your prototypical rock guitarist right you, there's that there's that beach ball that on the stage <laughs> that he's going fuck i had to replace that i took that out of ticket sales and fucking i was gonna lower the prices and <laughs> All right. He's botching the chords right now, thinking, <laughs> thinking about that budget of the ball. <laughs> okay, so that does it for the Serious Moonlight Tour. Uh, thanks for joining us once again, Justin. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. It's been a blast. A reminder for the audience, where can they find your art and music and all that fun uh, stuff? My YouTube, which is still rebuilding, uh, is just Justin Waterman, I believe. Uh... I'm subscribed to you. I can confirm it is Justin Waterman. <laughs> <laughs> at Jumper Cable on Instagram and at Waterman Art on Twitter. And we will be heading into tonight for our next two episodes. I even went out and bought it at the record convention I was at just for this episode. I would normally never buy tonight, <laughs> but who knows? Maybe, maybe I'll like. Spoiler alert, we always talk about spoilers that people really care about our opinions that much, but I, it's not an unpopular opinion. I'm not a Tonight fan, no. but maybe... It's probably not the worst record in your collection, though. I'm going to bet that. You're, you're going to purge something, there's gonna be a and it's not going to be Tonight. There's going to be a, some kind of greatest hits album for an artist that has like one song or yeah. something. <laughs> right. Let's see? Yeah, there. That's kind of what... I mean... There's not like five worse albums, though. <laughs> well, hey, we'll see, we'll see. Because I haven't given that album a listen in a long time, and that's why this show is going to be so interesting for us, because we're doing a deep dive in the truest sense. We're you know paying attention to even the, the so-called duds of this collection, yeah. so I'm, I'm looking forward to 
playing an album that frankly I probably I can't remember the last time I listened to it. You guys did an episode on Just the Gigolo and it worked out great. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for listening. I'm Jesse. I'm John. And I'm Justin. We'll catch you next time.